There is no greater thing. You're my all. You're the best. You're my joy. My righteousness. And I am so thankful, Lord Jesus, that as I stand before this great assembly to unfold your word, that it is not I who serves you mainly here, but you who serves me to give me life, to give me breath, to give me hope, to give me gospel, to give me love to you and love to this people. And it is not we who serve you mainly by coming into this room, but you who have served us to get us here. And my prayer is that every person in this room right now would discover what it means to be served by God. That you have given them life, you have given them breath, and you have brought them to this place for a particular appointed reason. Now manifest that reason, I pray, according to your grace and your great willingness to stoop and to serve us in our great need. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. One of the most exciting parts of the Bible is the book of Acts. And it's written by a doctor, a physician named Luke. And Luke was an, uh, a fellow traveler of the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul probably heard Jesus preach in person when he was on the earth. We know that he was educated in Jerusalem during the life of Jesus, and we know that he was standing there listening to the message of the first martyr named Stephen. And in fact, Luke tells us in the book of Acts that he was consenting to Stephen's death. In other words, he was very glad that Stephen was being stoned to death as the first Christian martyr. Just a few Months or perhaps a few years after Jesus had died and been raised. So this, this man, Luke, who wrote the Acts of the Apostles, is very, very closely tied in with Jesus of Nazareth, accompanied and was the, probably the personal physician of the Apostle Paul who had seen Jesus face to face and who had been there during the martyrdom of the first man who died because of his faith. This Apostle Paul hated Christianity. He wasn't yet an apostle. And why he hated Christianity is a very important question. Because a change came into his life where he ceased to hate Christianity and began to lay his life down for Christianity. Why did he hate it so much, and what happened to him? 
He was on his road uh, to Damascus to find Christians. He lived in Jerusalem and he was moving from Jerusalem in Israel up to Damascus in Syria to find Christians, to persecute them, bring them back, put them in prison in Jerusalem. And on that road, something absolutely stunning and supernatural happened to him. A light, which he couldn't explain, just like this one shining in my face here, making it hard for me to see you, probably a thousand times brighter, landed on him, blinded him for three days, and behind it, a voice that only he understood, though the others heard the sound, said, Saul, Saul, that was his other name, why are you persecuting me? And Paul said, who are you, Lord? And the voice came back, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And Paul, at that moment, felt his whole life on the edge of collapse. Everything he had devoted himself to seemed to be called into question at that moment. Because Paul had given himself to a, a way of salvation, a way of getting right with God, that when he heard... Jesus teach, and when he heard Stephen, that first Christian martyr, preach, it was so different than the way of getting right with God that he believed and that he had devoted himself to. Paul had always considered himself a strong Pharisee, the most rigorous group of Jews that there was. He took the law of Moses, he put it on like you put a yoke on an oxen, and he plied himself with all his might to keep the law of God and demonstrate to God that he could serve him and show that he was worthy to be accepted and to be brought into eternal life. That was not the message he heard Christians preaching. And he hated their message because if their message was right, his whole life was built on sand. He had given himself to a pipe dream. His whole boast, his significance was going down the tubes. And here on the Damascus Road is the living Christ alive from the dead, speaking out of an inexplicable light, saying, I am the one you are persecuting. That was a crisis. So he goes on into Damascus blind and sits for three days pondering whether there's anything left to live for. And a man comes named Ananias, appointed by the Lord to tell him the truth. And when Ananias comes and lifts his voice, the scales, as it were, fall from Paul's eyes. He becomes a Christian convert and for the rest of his days suffers beautifully for the cause which he once hated with all his might. So the question I have this morning is, what was this message 
What was this word, this reality that he had picked up probably in the teachings of Jesus? He had definitely picked it up from Stephen and wanted Stephen dead because of it, because it called his own boast, his own life, his own way of salvation into question. I want to know with you this morning, what was that? What is the Christian gospel? What's the meaning of Christianity that would cause a man to hate it so much and then love it so much that he would lay down his life for it? Now, I'm going to read for you a sermon that Paul preached a few years later. It's just a little short sermon. It takes about three or four minutes to read. And it comes from the book of Acts, chapter 17. If you have a Bible, you can read it in just a moment. I'm going to have two of its verses put on the overhead here. And we'll be able to look at it together if you don't have a Bible. But for now, perhaps you should just listen and pretend that uh, you are hearing this message from the Apostle Paul himself as you stand in Athens at about, say, the mid-50s, say, 20 years after Jesus has died. Paul has been serving him for some time now. Only a new situation has arisen. He has come not into a synagogue this time where he was used to preach to Jews. He has come into the philosophical court, as it were. The people who were the intellectuals of the day, the people of Athens, what would he say to them about Jesus? And would he tip his hand so that we this morning can read this sermon and find out what it was about Christianity in Paul's mind that was so at odds with his former life as a Pharisee that made him hate Christianity, fear that it might be true, be blind, be converted, and then suffer for years because it is true. What was it? I'm going to start reading at verse 16 of Acts chapter 17. Now, while Paul was waiting in Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews, that's where he starts, and the God-fearing Gentiles, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him, and some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus, Mars Hill, the great place of the debates, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians, Luke puts this in, all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. They love newness. 
So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Now mark this next verse. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all men life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his children. Being then his children, the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now that's where they cut him off. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, We shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also was Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Now, can we put these two verses, verses 24 and 25, on the screen? Okay. This is the essence, I believe, of the message that Paul hated in Christianity. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath, and all things. Just take verse 25 and let it sink in. God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. This is what we've put on your pen. God cannot be served, but loves to serve. Now that's very bad news and very good news, depending 
on what you feel like this morning. Paul knew how he felt, and early on in his life, this was not good news. If you feel strong and self-sufficient and morally in sync with God and able to serve Him and make independent contributions to God in His work, this is bad news. God is not served by human hands as though He needed anything. In other words, God is self-sufficient. So self-sufficient that we can't make any contributions to Him. We can't improve upon Him. Who has ever given a gift to God that He should be repaid? The Apostle Paul said in another place. And so, if, if you come to God with the mindset that I'm serving you, I'm showing you that I'm adequate, I will negotiate you for a place in your eternity, and this message comes to you, then your whole life is called into question. Well, if I can't serve you, then how in the world am I supposed to relate to you? How am I supposed to get right with you? How am I supposed to know that it's okay between me and you? What am I supposed to do to get into your favor and into your heaven? And Paul didn't have a clue. He just knew he hated this message. It called his whole ground of boasting into question as a Pharisee. He said in the book of Philippians and the book of Galatians, I have excelled beyond all my contemporaries in the keeping of the law. I am a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And here comes this Christian message and he begins to pick it up while Jesus is still on the earth. And then he hears it in Stephen's speech. God cannot be served. He is a fountain and out of him flows grace and life. And if you're ever going to get right with him, it will not be by working for him. And Paul's whole life comes crashing down on the Damascus road. It's as though you spend your whole life doing aerobic leg exercises to get your thighs strong and your calves strong for climbing and jumping and running only to discover that the last contest of the universe is hang gliding. (laughs) Which it is. So the self-sufficiency of God did not come to Paul as good news at first. And it may not land on some of you as good news. I don't know what kind of moral, upright people there are in this room. Some may feel very, very self-sufficient and that you have a lot to give to God and that he certainly would respond in favor and reward you with a wage that would be eternally satisfying. But my guess is that this room has a lot more people in it of another kind. And so let me just mention this is incredibly good news if you feel weak. God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself is the giver. We're not the giver, folks. 
He himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. So if you this morning feel weak and helpless and empty and inadequate and unworthy, this message, this text might land on you as good news. That he's the kind of God, the God who made the heavens and the earth is the kind of God who will not negotiate. He does not receive works that can earn wages. He will preserve for himself the all-glorious position of giver, giver, forgiver. Because when that is his position, he gets the glory and you get the blessing. Bad news to the strong, good news to the weak. Now, I wonder if you think that's a lot to build a whole Christian gospel on two verses. So let me just look at one other verse with you that goes, I think, right to the heart of the message of Jesus himself. Let's let Jesus talk from the gospel according to Mark, chapter 10, verse 45. I think we have that for the overhead as well. The Son of Man, this is Jesus talking now in Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man came not to be served. Does that sound familiar? Compare it to the little pen. Compare it to Acts 17.25. God is not served by human hands, Paul said in Acts 17.25. Jesus says, the Son of Man, the Son of God, incarnate as Son of Man. Why did He come? This is the heart of the Christian message. Why Is there a Christianity? Why is there a Christ, a Christ? Why did God send His Son to become incarnate in human flesh? And the answer of Jesus is, not to be served. Let this, before you read the second half of the verse, which is more familiar Christian teaching, let the first half of the verse hit you. Jesus says to you this morning, I'm coming into this room here, face to face, eyeball to eyeball, by my Spirit, not to be served. I'm not... This is a college here. I taught here for six years. In the spring of the years when I was here, the companies would come. The scouts looking for the best seniors so they could take them, train them, pay them well. They'd set up their tables, job fairs. Is the gospel, is the arrival of Jesus in your life like a scout looking for a competent senior who can think clear and work hard so that his company will float and prosper with your help? The answer is no. 
The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. It's as though those scouts should set up their tables and a young person should sit down and say, Okay, I've I've studied business or I've studied engineering and I'm ready to work for you. And the scout should say, well, this is a different kind of business. We only take welfare people. And in fact, we don't let them work. We work for them and we pay eternal wages. The gospel is not a help-wanted sign. It's a help-available sign. The Son of Man came not for you to serve Him. This is a glorious verse, a great, great teaching. I think it's crystal clear. Why then did He come? And why is there a Christianity? And the second half of the verse, you can read it for yourself. He came to serve you. Now, I know this could become blasphemous, couldn't it? Jesus is my servant. Do this, Jesus. Do that, Jesus. Serve me. God is willing to risk blasphemy to get the truth across to you. Jesus is your servant. He came to meet your needs, not for you to meet His needs. Now, the greatest need you have this morning, and the greatest need I have this morning, is not for obedient children, and that they come home. It's not to fix the marriage, as painful as it may be. It's not health in spite of cancer. It's not a good job. It's not a longer vacation. The greatest need that you and I have in this room right now is for somebody to die for us. To give his life as a ransom for us. Which is what this verse says Jesus came to do. He didn't come to piddle around. He went right to the core need that you and I have. And I think your conscience would bear witness to this. I wonder if it would. Mine does. I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to be one of the good guys. And my conscience bears me witness that if I don't have a ransom, if I don't have somebody to die in my place, I'm going to be condemned. You know by whom? First and foremost, by my conscience. My conscience. I get a funny feeling in my left armpit. You know what my first thought is? What I do wrong. What I do wrong. Why would that be my first question? It's because I do a lot of wrong things. A lot of bad attitudes. A lot of feelings that just crop up. Where'd that come from? I don't need God to tell me I'm in trouble. My conscience is just fine, thank you. And it can take away sleep and it can give a, a knot in the stomach. It can give ulcers. 
Doesn't our conscience function to let us know if somebody doesn't intervene for us between us and God, who certainly the creator of the conscience has higher standards than I have for me, then I'm in big trouble with God Almighty. And we are in big trouble with God Almighty. And He knew it. And therefore He sends His Son into the world. In order, the verse says, to give His life as a ransom for many. So we're in no position to negotiate. If there isn't another way to get right with God besides the way Paul said, namely, the law is like a yoke. You put it on and then like a good, strong, moral, self-sufficient ox, you pull and you pull and you pull. And hopefully, if you look around, you can see enough people worse than you are so that you feel a little bit better than they and hope that God will say you pull hard enough at the end of your life and you can come in knowing all the while I'm not doing it. I'm not making it. That way of salvation breeds suicide. And misery, if you stop and let yourself think about it long enough. We are rebels in our wills. God has not been loved and honored and trusted. We all know this. I haven't loved God the way he demands to be loved. I haven't trusted him every day of my life. He hasn't been my treasure. I've treasured things and cars and new computer programs and my wife and my five kids. I've treasured those things way out of proportion to the way I should treasure God. I know that and I've massively, therefore, offended God. And He's just to be displeased with me and in His holiness and righteousness and justice to disapprove of me in that kind of behavior And I know that my conscience bears me witness that I'm not where I should be with God. If there's not something like that, if there's not a gospel like that, somebody to give his life as a ransom, a ransom, what's that? Well, I've got a massive debt. I've got a massive debt to God. I am in such deep debt to God because of my repeated sinning over years and years and years. How can I get out of debt? Because in myself, all I can do is try to impress God. And then I I blot out this verse and I blot out Acts 17.25 because I try to work for Him and He's told me I can't work for Him. So what in the world can I do? but go deeper and deeper into debt. And his answer is, you got to have somebody else pay your debt. And that's why I sent Jesus into the world. And it cost him his life. The debt he paid was a perfect life. I owe my life to God. The only way God could get right with me is to take my life from me forever. And he loves me and he says, I will take my son's life. I will substitute my son. I will pay the debt you owe me through the debt he pays in the giving of his life. Now this is incredibly good news.
At least if your conscience is anything like mine, and if you relate to God anything the way the people in the Bible do, or the way I think most people do in the world, desperate to earn God's favor, knowing they can never earn God's favor, and wondering, well then, how can I get right with God? And most people then change God into an image of their own where He has no wrath and He has no justice. And he has no disapproval. He's just one whitewash of sin, sweeps everything under the rug of the universe. And we all know at midnight, that is not the way it is. And so our hearts cry out for a substitute and a gospel that would not be one that says, All right, work for me, Piper. Work for me. If that's the message coming out of heaven, I'm a goner. And it isn't the message coming out of heaven. The incredibly good news is that God is so self-sufficient that he doesn't need me. He will be my need meter. He exalts his fullness by filling up my emptiness. And so the issue boils down to receiving. And it's just too good to be true. The issue of getting right with God. How do you get right with the creator of the universe so that when you come to die, you'll have peace? And the answer is, it's an issue of receiving, not serving. It's an issue of receiving service. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. So our role is receive, receive. Believe. And so you may ask now, I'm almost done. I'm going to draw this together here with this concluding remark. You may ask, well then, what in the world does the Christian life look like? I mean, how do you translate non-serving into a life? The answer goes something like this. It it isn't, please, don't make this mistake. Many professing Christians make this mistake. Okay, we begin by receiving and believing. Good. Now I've become a Christian. I'm right with God. Okay, now the Christian life is go ahead and take that law and put it on like an ox and... Work and work and work. And the connection between that beginning, receiving, believing and this other thing called the Christian life gets all out of joint. And it looked like it was good news and now it's become bad news again. Here's the way I would describe the Christian life. The Christian life is getting up in the morning and saying in your heart, Jesus... You are my Savior, you are my King, you are my friend, you are my guide, you are my protection, you are my advocate, you are my joy, you are my hope. And so I today, fresh, receive this and I cast myself today, afresh, 
on you for you to be all those things for me as I go down to breakfast and as I get in my car and drive and as I sit before my computer or as I stand over my patients or as I mortar my bricks or hammer my nails or shuffle my papers or teach my class. And I know that my will and my mind and my muscles are all without you wrong. My will is a rebel will. My mind is a darkened mind. And my muscles obey my rebel will and my darkened mind. And unless you today come and serve me, that is, work on my will and my mind so that the rebellion is subdued and so that light replaces darkness, so that my muscles and my whole body join in your way joyfully, then I'm a goner and I'll wind up working for you or hating you before this day is over. The Christian life is a mystery, folks. I'm just learning it at age 52, been a Christian 46 years since I prayed to receive Jesus at my mother's knee. I feel like I'm learning about the mystery of living by being served. It's just a paradox. Because you get up in the morning and you know you can pull yourself out of bed. You know you can will to get dressed. You know you can will to eat breakfast. You know you can will and let you have, nevertheless you have the gospel coming to you saying, don't serve God. Don't serve Jesus. He gives life and breath and everything. So, now I told you, I'd come back and rescue that song, God is Able. This is it, right here. As you enter the day, yes, you're a servant in the sense that you want to do the Master's will. But that's about the end of the analogy. Because from there on, you've got to have Him serving you with wisdom and strength and protection and guidance and forgiveness and enablement all day long, or you're going to fall into the role of worker and employee earning wages that can only be death. And so the mystery and the wonder of the Christian life is learning how to get up in the morning and relax in God to cherish God and love God and delight in God, and then to ask for His fullness and His enablement and to set your eyes on things that would be God-honoring and God-pleasing, and then to rest by faith in His divine enabling and to do, yes, do, serve as you must, but in the strength that He supplies, that in everything He might get the glory. So the good news this morning is that we can't serve God, but that He serves us. He pursues us with goodness and mercy. He works everything together for our good as we trust in Him and love Him. He never leaves us or forsakes us so that we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. I think the Lord's last word to us this morning would be Matthew 11:28. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, 
and I will give you rest. Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am meek and lowly in heart and you will find not oxen like effort, but rest for your souls. Because, he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There is a yoke to be carried in the Christian life, the yoke of obedience to Jesus. But it is light and it is easy because he carries it. He carries it. I once preached a sermon 17 years ago, one of the first sermons I ever preached at Bethlehem. And I pictured this text that I just quoted from Matthew 11 as me as an oxen and a yoke fit over me and two handles of a plow attached to the yoke and Jesus as the one who has his hands on the plow and the plow is the meaning of my life cutting through the earth and I'm hooked up and Jesus takes the handles of the plow with this 800 pound ox in the yoke and he says, all right, let's plow. And with the twist of his wrist, he goes and lifts me off the ground and goes. That's the Christian life to me. If I don't have a Jesus like that, I'm done for. Father in heaven, I pray that as we draw this service to a close and respond to you that you would come and show us yourself. I've done the best I could and I believe that you have been serving me and us in this last little bit of time. And now I pray that you would bring this service to a great climax of faith and love and hope and joy and that you would make yourself king and friend and guide and protection and treasure and joy in the lives of everybody in this room. In your name, Lord Jesus, I pray. Amen.